something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? That moment you lose a job, or a loved one, or even a piece of yourself. I'm Brooke Shields. And this is Now What? A podcast about pivotal moments as told by people who lived them. Each week I sit down with a guest to talk about the times they were knocked off course and what they did to move forward. Some stories are funny. Others are gut-wrenching. But all are unapologetically human and remind us that every success and every setback is accompanied by a choice. And that choice answers one question. Now what? I remember when we were doing the 24-hour plays. We were doing that commercial after 9-11. And when anybody, when the director or someone will say, does anybody have any questions? (laughs) You'd always raise your hand. (laughs) (laughs) And it would be something. And then I'd be like, oh, do I have to make fun of her for this? Because like, maybe I can. I think I'm going to make fun of her for this one. But you stood out and you said... Excuse me, um, you're like, uh, do you think we could, could we stagger? <laughs> and that was that was your way of, of saying that Elaine Stritch's hand when she was doing New York was covering your face. And you didn't want to say, <laughs> you're covering my face. It was Jerry Mitchell. Yeah, it was Jerry Mitchell. And, he, and you go, could we stagger? And then I went, Jerry, um, could BB's face not be covered by Elaine's hand? <laughs> My guest today is an icon of the stage and screen. Bibi Newirth is a Tony and Emmy award-winning actor and dancer. She's well-known on Broadway for her star-making performances in Sweet Charity and Chicago, and won over a new legion of fans in shows like Frasier, Madam Secretary, Julia, just to name a few. Bibi is an actor's actor. She's had an enviable career, one built on equal parts talent and hard work. I have been a fan of hers for years and was so honored that she agreed to share lessons from her incredible journey with me. So without further ado, here is Bibi Newirth. 
Bibi Newirth, thank you so much. I'm so happy that you said yes to come and, and join the show and talk to me. Where are you right now? Happy to be talking to you, Brooke. Every time we bump into each other, we have to sit down for an hour and talk and catch up. So I'm so grateful <laughs> that you invited me to come on your show. I'm down in Greenwich Village, where I live in New York City. By the way, I don't need to have a podcast to sit down for an hour and talk <laughs> with you. I will, I, I'm, I will do that anytime you want. You know, it's funny because I was trying to do just a little extra research, and I didn't know you were born in Newark. I was. I, I love that. My mother was born in Newark. Well, I hate to break it to you, but I was in that my being in Newark was that's where the hospital was. But when I was, you know, so I was born in okay. a hospital in Newark, and then I was taken home to Princeton, New Jersey, where I, <laughs> I well, get to say, yeah, I'm a Jersey girl. That's okay. You can get both because you were born there. So you still have that in your blood. And then you were raised in Princeton, which I spent four years of the best years of my life there. I remember when you were at, at the school there, there were people walking around the campus with buttons that said, yes, I've seen Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, luckily that wore off pretty quickly. Like freshman, the first part of freshman month was a little bit was a little bit tough. That must have been awful. It must have been hard enough to go to college and then have people staring at you. And well, and then the people that you wanted to be friends with were trying to give you space. So I had no friends, a lot of space that I didn't want. And so everybody was trying to be so cool. And, you know, as an adjustment, I started feeling guilty for putting that on anybody. It's hard enough being a freshman. But um, what kind of a young person were you personality-wise? How would you describe who you were? Who was, I was baby BB? I would say that I was a bad girl who behaved herself. Oh, Oh, I'm living, I'm living vicariously through you right now. <laughs> well, I did get arrested for smoking marijuana when I was 13. Now it's like, really? And <laughs> yeah, walk yeah, outside yeah. your front door. <laughs> but, you know, when you're 13 and it's 1972, it's, it was different. I love that you have a record. <laughs> <laughs> New Earth has a record. <laughs> that, that's what I want. I, I want as a poster. <laughs> But that's why I say I was a bad girl who behaved myself. It's like, yes, I was smoking dope when I was in my very early teens. But it's like, is that really? I wasn't dealing heroin. <laughs> no, no. I'm glad you. I know. Glad you know where to draw not, the line. <laughs> not smoking a pipe with some. You know, it's like not that big a deal. But and they held you. They held you there. You had to. Did you have to call your parents or someone to come and get you? Oh, get you? Yeah, yeah my oh. went to a. We were at a dance. Remember? Um, oh, you'd know this place. It's it's on the it's on the campus. There was a dance. There's this. Um, uh, there was a great high school band. Some great musicians at Princeton High. They had a band called Fordham Road, and they were playing. And my friend Kathy and I went to this dance. And then I slipped out to uh, smoke some dope with some friends of mine. And we were sitting on the grass and we were passing this pipe. <laughs> There's two other people. And these flashlights came around and they were cops. And this is how stupid I am, Brooke Shields. I was across the street from the cop station. And you're a townie. <laughs> Sex, drugs, rock and roll, Brooke. It was oh. sex, drugs, rock and roll. Oh, God, yes. No, but what, but like being a student, being a, uh, a townie, I say, I always was worried that like they hated us, that they like hated the college kids. I had no consciousness of that. I wasn't. Oh, that's of, good. Um, as you can 
Steve from talking to me. I really didn't know what was going on. Ever. You were stoned. What did you pot. care? I was, I was smoking pot. I was going to class. That's all I cared about. Boys, pot, and ballet. Did you always know that you wanted to dance? Like always. You did. Actually, actually, when I was funny you mentioned Newark, because when I was born, the doctor pulled me from my mother and said, Oh, she's a dancer. Really? Yes. Oh, come on, that's amazing. <laughs> I asked for ballet classes when I was four. My mother um, had me wait until I was five because a five-year-old's attention span is a little bit longer than a four-year-old's. And so um, I started dancing when I was five at Princeton Ballet, and um, I danced in this, you know, non-professional ballet company all through high school. And then I went to Juilliard in the dance department, and then I quit Juilliard in the dance department after one year. And then I just started working. But, you know, when I say to you, I'm a dancer first, it's sort of, I sort of feel like that's the animal that I am, you know, if that, Mm -hmm. you know, some people are jocks, that is, that's what they are. That is their true nature. So Mm -hmm. I feel like when I say, well, I'm a dancer first, it's because I, that's the animal that I am. And so, you know, I might be doing a television show where I'm talking and listening, but I always feel like just because I'm not dancing doesn't mean I'm not dancing. I think that's why it's always a little bit awkward when I don't get to dance in something. I feel a little bit, okay, I'm doing it inside, but it might not be showing outside. Yeah, but also there's a there's a lyricism to it, you know, to all of it, to the rhythm of your voice, to the sort of flow that happens when you're in a part, you know? I mean, it, there's, it's not as if, I mean, I don't know, but whenever I've watched you on stage or off, there's no sort of just a beginning, middle, and an end. When you first see you, you think that there's something that you might have missed from before, but then when you last see you for that moment, you're still thinking of the continuation of the the, the piece of music or the whatever. And I know that sounds all kind of lofty, but there's something very beautiful and about the physicality and it's just in your body, you know, and you can tell that. Brooke, that's one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. I am, that is so beautiful. I'm so grateful that you said that. That is a beautiful observation and that's really moving. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Listen, I, I've had the the fear and the distinct honor of actually having to step into your shoes um, <laughs> on Broadway. And that was daunting for me to, to when you were leaving Adam's family and then to sort of be this first replacement, there's so much pressure in it. And I, and I was very acutely aware of that. And, and, and it, was, uh, it was not only an honor, but it was also, I thought, God, I want to live up to not, it, it's different because you don't want to compare, but you also want to make sure that you honor the person who performed prior. It's a really interesting position to be in, and I have been in it myself. I replaced, I replaced, I I played the role of Spider Woman in Kiss of the Spider Woman after Cheetah Rivera did. No one can replace Cheetah Rivera. You know, she was playing in Spider Woman, and then the next person to play that part was me. So I can't say that I replaced her, but I can say I played the part next. And so I understand the conundrum of stepping into a role that is created by somebody else. doesn't matter who it is, really. It's a very good lesson in humility, but also in being true to yourself and recognizing what you have 
you know, my Morticia is not your Morticia and your Morticia mm-hmm. is not mine, but the role has been created and it happened to be created by me. So now you have to come in and go, okay, what did she create and how can I be true to myself in doing that? Because the minute you stop being true to yourself in any part, in any walk of life, you're sunk. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Why did you leave Juilliard after a year? I wanted to work. I was (laughs) (laughs) just, you know, when I I, uh, graduated, you know, once I was looking to see if I... (laughs) Princeton High would let me graduate because I was so bad at school. 
I was like, am I going to get out of here? I don't know. Um, I, uh, you know, I said, I didn't want to go to college. I just wanted to go to New York and dance. And my parents said, you have to go to college. I said, I don't want to go to college. They said, you have to go to college. I said, okay. So in 1976, when I graduated high school, there were two schools pretty much for that. And that was um, SUNY at Purchase and there was Juilliard. And so I auditioned for both and I got into both and I chose Juilliard because it was in New York City. And then um, I just wanted to start working. I wanted to start auditioning. You know, I was 18. I was let me get going. And so my parents, who are really creative, brilliant people, said, okay, create your own college within the city. Find yourself some acting classes and voice classes and dance classes and all that, and we will support you in that, and that will be the college that you create in the city. So I did that for about, it was almost a year when I got my first job. That's a big decision, though, to make as like a, a, a young person. Oh, I, never even a whisper of a shadow of a doubt in my mind. It was just, let me get started. How did you get your first job? I went to open calls and I went to, you know, you get the backstage or on Thursdays, show business and backstage came out and you get them and you go through and look at all where the auditions were and what has open calls. And I went to the, the first open call, I think I went to for chorus line. I was still 18 and I got cut right away. I was really, really, really too young. And then I went, I don't know, six months later and I got a little further in the audition. And then I remember it was another few months later, it said only people who have not previously auditioned apply. And I went, well, screw that. I'm going. I'm just going to pretend I didn't. Yeah, I'm <laughs> going. And so I went and that's, that's the one I got called back and called back and called back and called back. And that's when they finally hired me. And I was 19. 19. Oh my God. And then you win a Tony by the time you're- 27. 27. First one was 27. Yeah. The first one. Isn't that sad? <laughs> Doesn't that feel good? The first one. The first of. <laughs> Wait, if you were smoking again, I would just do a <laughs> little inhale and then go for the, the first one, That's darling. The first awful, one. And then you'd ash. I was just trying to be accurate. I'm sorry. Oh, I love it. No, please. It's That's my bad. But my God. So what did that feel like? Out of body, just completely surreal and out of body. And that was the first time I think I ever had to be on stage as myself. I have never, ever had a moment of stage fright in my life. But when they called my name and I had to go, go on stage and it was me out there, oh man, I froze. I didn't know what I... It was surreal. But that's that's a real thing. And I think just it's kind of very meta for people, but I do really think that that's a, that's a very important piece of it. So that's stage. And then you book a job on Cheers <laughs> as Lilith. How do you get from, because that's LA, right? Yeah. You know, you know what happened? I um, <clears throat> When we did the revival of Sweet Charity, uh, we rehearsed and opened that in LA at the Dorothy Chandler, and then we did it in San Francisco. And then we had four months off before we rehearsed for Broadway. And during those four months, that was so that Debbie Allen, our star, yeah. would finish her series of fame. And so during those four months, I hung out in LA and I got a couple of auditions for some walk-on parts in some television shows, because that's sort of what you do, I guess. And um, 
I got a couple of walk-on lines and one of them was, you know, this little scene on Cheers. So that's all it was. It was just one of those, you know, jobs. And then, so I did that. And um, then I went home to New York and I started up Sweet Charity on Broadway. And, and then Cheers called and they said, can you come back and do that part again? And I went, oh, and I had like... Um, I can only do it on a Monday. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they had like, um, I like to say it's like snow days. Like I could, in my contract for Sweet Charity, I could walk <laughs> a week to do a TV show, but I had to add that week to the end of my contract. So you're doing Sweet Charity for like nine more years. <laughs> because <laughs> you keep... <laughs> but um, no, so I so I took off a week and I went out to... LA and I did another Cheers episode and then I came back and I did that like maybe twice. And I remember sitting backstage with Michael Rupert, who was playing Oscar. He said, what are you going to do when they ask you to be on Cheers full time? I said, that's not going to happen. They're not going to ask me to do that. So what happened when they did? So they did. And I, I got the advice of the four people that I trusted most. That is mommy Daddy, okay. yes, <laughs> Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> it's funny; those are my people too. <laughs> BB, her parents, Gwen, and Bob. <laughs> so I was in a position, you know, that where I was working, you know, I actually could ask ask them all, and they all gave me brilliant advice and made me feel very good about a decision to take the job because I really. I had never seen myself doing television. I had never saw that for myself. I never thought, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do television. I just thought, I'm just going to dance on Broadway forever. And the accolades that you got and the, the, the you know, awards that you got doing that, that was, that, you know, was such an important period of time. Now, did you, so were you, were you married then? Very were badly. You? Oh, oh, <laughs> well, we all have to have a starter marriage. Oh, I have one man. of those. Did it have to um, be- but you were married early, early, right? Twenty-five. Yeah, it was a. It was that was no good. That was. It was interesting. I was doing the best show on television. I mean, it was getting awards for you know best comedy series, winning this Emmy awards for this, and I'm getting all this stuff, and I'm doing really well. Well, that an absolutely miserable marriage. It was the kind of thing where I had to go. That's it. It's over, and get out of there. But that, I mean, that's a, that takes a lot of of guts, and thank God that you were able to make that decision for yourself. I mean, terrifying. you know, it's terrifying, but you knew you had to. Did that experience sort of shape you in in sort of how you went forward into your career and your your life after that, knowing that you made that decision for yourself? I don't think it had anything to do with career, because career and creativity has always been completely separate from romantic life. So I don't think anything that happened, you know, a, a, a miserable marriage and a horrible divorce didn't change the way I approached the performing arts or my life in it. Right. But I, I would say that I was uh, very uh, nervous about getting involved. <laughs> oh, I'm not getting married again. Then it was like, okay, I'm not going to live with anyone again. Then it was like, Okay, you can live across the street from me. <laughs> <laughs> but were there were there were there things that you 
felt like you had to sacrifice in your personal life to keep that career going at the trajectory it was on? I don't know. Maybe I did, but I wasn't conscious of it. I, I don't know. I've never been, like I kind of said earlier, I've never been a person who uh, plans things out. I've never been a schemer. I've never been, I like to say I'm not ambitious because I think of ambition as somebody sitting down with a notebook and going, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Right. I'm this and then in five years I'm going to do this and if I meet this person if I do this I've never been like that it's been it's always been like I really want to get a job this is what I want to do I want to dance on Broadway and anything that I saw that crossed my path that was an audition you know I I would go to in order to do that Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's something about dance that I think is, I I know what you mean about the word ambition, but I always think of it in terms of a striving. You know, it's that you strive to keep getting better at your craft and you, you dance even when it hurts and you, you keep going when you don't think you can go anymore. And to me, that's a form of ambition, but it's really just a perseverance and a striving. And that can take a, that can take a toll on a person physically. I mean, did you find that your commitment to sort of to to dancing took a toll on your body physically? Oh, yeah. I'm a beatable. Every time I go to, uh, like, let's say I go to a new massage therapist and they go, is there anything bothering you right now? I go, okay. Here we go. <laughs> I, I am a beat up old dancer. I had two hip replacements, one when I was 47 and the other when I was 49. And then did you do Chicago again after yes, I after did. them? Yeah. Okay, come on. You're <laughs> so you get two hip replacements, then you go back into Fosse, which is all about twisting it all and, yeah. and all of that. Was that the best thing you could have ever done? <laughs> I mean it. Like, did it make you baby? What's that? No, as I think it was maybe honestly. I think that might have been the best thing yeah. for well, a dancer to get hip replacements and then go do Fosse and know you can do it. Well, yes. I mean, psychologically, emotionally, it was extremely important. But I'll tell you, I was still, I was, I was, I was definitely off crutches. I may or may not have still had a cane when I went to uh, Barry Weisler and said, I'd like to play Roxy. What do you think of that? <laughs> so I, I played Roxy six months after I had my first hip replacement. What was your recovery process like for your hips? Well, like I say, this was um, this was a while ago, and they had the way they do it now. You are up and out and and back and running around. When I was doing it, and it was I, when I said I was in ballet class eight weeks after my hip replacement, jaws would drop. But now people, I actually said that to someone, they said, really that long? I was like, fuck you. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But you also went in very fit and very, and your muscle memory as a dancer. Is that, was it after that, that you started the Dancer's Resource Program? Uh, I started the Dancer's Resource in between my two hip replacements, actually. So you had one and then the other. Okay, yes. you didn't get them both done at the no, same time. No, no. Okay. There was two years in between. My my okay. right one was okay. So you start the Dancer's Resource Program. It's very important. I want you to have a chance to talk about that. Thank you. Well, I started the Dancer's Resource um, ha- after I'd been through the emotional and physical trauma, really, of the arthritis that I'd had in my hip and then the subsequent replacement and I had recovered and I was doing fine. I was dancing again, but I recognize that this is, um, it's, it's traumatic. And, uh, I had a friend who was having a real, a really, really hard time with her hip and with her surgeries. And I thought, I wish you had someone to talk to about this, a therapist to talk to or someone to talk to. And so I was on the board of trustees at the Actors Fund, and the Actors Fund, which is a human services organization for everyone in show business and the performing arts, and in fact, now it's called the Entertainment Community Fund. So I was on the board of trustees, and I said, can we have a program for dancers? I said, it should be like group therapy for injured dancers. 
but and I'll call it Injured Dancers Anonymous. It has to be private. No one can know that, you know, there is so much uh, stigma around being injured if you're a dancer and you have to be so secretive about it. You cannot show weakness. Because you'll be replaced or you'll, you'll be because there's someone right behind you? Yeah, it's dancers are on the bottom of the food chain in the performing arts. We are, mm. we are the, the least respected, the, we get paid less than everybody else. There's no physical therapy, it's maybe five minutes a week. It's really, it's just, we need a little bit of extra help. And uh, so we brought the idea to the board and the board said yes and blessed the fund for saying yes. So now there is something called the Dancers Resource at the Entertainment Community Fund. And it's a portal to the rest of the services that the fund has to offer. But it also has these groups where you can go for eight weeks of uh, sessions and sit with other dancers with a social worker who is a dedicated social worker and it's completely confidential. And I'm so, so pleased that it's up and going and the fund is running it so beautifully. Well, you're making a huge difference in, in many a dancer's lives. I call the show Now What?, because it's about the pivotal moments in life that sort of force us to refocus and keep going. What do you think a big now what moment was for you? I don't know. I mean, I don't think I consciously say, now what do I do? I just right. go, okay, go. it looks like I need a lawyer. <laughs> I just left this miserable relationship. I better get a lawyer. You know, I go now. What? I mean, I'm always, I'm always looking to to learn from experiences. I, I my now what's are all the time too, and I just go uh oh, and then I pivot. I don't ever wallow in the in the the, the inactivity. That's just not the way I'm I'm programmed. But I'm curious if there was an experience that taught you something. I mean, do you ever read reviews? I, I didn't ask you that question. No, that's the, no, I don't read reviews and I don't read reviews because Bob taught me not to read reviews. Um, my family and a friend of mine and I were leaving the opening night party for Sweet Charity and we bumped into Bob who was coming back into the ballroom and we were on our way out and he goes, eh, where are you going? Where are you going? And we go, oh, we're going to go home. We're going to go read the reviews. He goes, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't read the reviews. Don't read the reviews. Did he say why? He didn't say it. That's all he said. Don't read the reviews. And he said it a couple of times. And we left and I had this little thing in my mind, you know, um, you know, with my family and all happy and la 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 la. But there is something in the back. I, you know, I, I try to keep Bob's voice in the back of my mind, certainly when I'm working in the performing arts, but that was deeply lodged. It was right there. And so we went and got the papers. And as I read the reviews, I had Bob's voice and hit that lesson with me as I read the reviews. And I went, right, they don't mean anything. There is no reason to read a review. I believe this is me and everybody's a different artist and they have to do what they have to do. But for me, I have, I said that way, I have no reason to read a review. It doesn't it does no good. It can only harm me. What matters when I do a show or perform is how I feel, how my colleagues feel, 
how the audience in that moment feels, and that's all that matters. I, you know, with respect to critics, there are good ones, there are bad ones, but that's one person coming in to do their job in their life to write something for their work. It has nothing to do with me and my life and my work. I don't read reviews either because I I read them years and years back. And I read them because I wanted approval and I wanted a pat on my back and I wanted to be told I was doing a good job. And it has no, had nothing to do with what I was going to do the next night, right. the next show. And, and if someone said I sucked, was I going to go out on stage and just stand there and say, I'm sorry, I suck. I can't give you a show that you just paid for? Well, what we do is you know, if you're an artist or a creative person or a craftsperson, it is a, at least for me, it is a deeply, deeply personal, very profound experience. It is so personal. It has nothing to do with anybody else. I, I work with and share that with my colleagues. I share it with my choreographer, director, music director, and we make something and it is always very, very deep and profound and personal to me to have somebody come in and, and, you know, to go, Oh, let's see what this stranger says about me. It just doesn't make sense. But it wasn't until I had the voice of an artist who I trusted completely, Bob Fosse. I com I completely trusted him and I trusted that he saw me and who I was as a performer that when he said that, I just, he said, jump. I said, how high? I know that will be best for me. So when he says, don't read reviews, it's because it's the right thing to not do. <laughs> that was the wildly talented B.B. Newirth. If you liked our interview, check out her work in Julia. It's streaming now on HBO Max. That's it for us today. Talk to you next week. Now What with Brooke Shields is a production of iHeartRadio. Our lead producer and wonderful showrunner is Julia Weaver. Additional research and editing by Darby Masters and Abu Zafar. Our executive producer is Christina Everett. The show is mixed by Bahid Frazier. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is Sheep Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.